You are listening to episode 63 of In Film We Trust. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show. Detroit is on the verge of collapse, murder, rape, and all-out mayhem run the streets. When police officer Murphy is murdered by Detroit's crime lord, mega-corporation Omni Consumer Products takes the opportunity to resurrect Murphy as the newest product in law enforcement, Robocop. Released in 1987, Robocop is the first Hollywood picture by the acclaimed provocateur of films such as Basic Instinct and Total Recall, the Dutchman, Paul Verhoeven. But is Robocop mere provocation? Is there a moral? A polemic? Is Robocop, dare I say, an important masterpiece? Well, luckily for us at In Film We Trust, we are joined by Nick Scheist of the Bad Movies We Love podcast to discuss this film that has influenced his journey in filmdom and help us try to put together the pieces and hopefully answer these questions. So last week we covered the high school movie 187 starring starring Samuel Jackson with the great Newman from Movies for Days. We had a lot of fun on that episode. In fact, we had so much fun, we thought, the next week, why don't we have another guest? And so that's what we've done. So for this week, we have, from the Bad Movies We Love podcast, we have Mr. Nick Scheist. Welcome to the pod, sir. That, How are you doing, man? Thank you, thank you. I'm doing I'm doing good. It's it's early here. I'm waiting for football to start, but uh, I'm, I'm happy to be part of this because I love this movie that we're going to talk about. So have you had your morning coffee? Are you all jacked up? I know it's about 8 a.m. your way. And we do apologize for that because it's 4 p.m. here. So we are much more rejuvenated, so to speak. So how are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling good. No no complaints. Uh, I've got my coffee here, so I can I can lean on that if I need it. And uh, happy birthday to you as well. I'm glad that... Uh you know, we didn't plan to record on your birthday, so. <laughs> <sighs> yes, thank you. 35 yesterday, Nick, 35. <laughs> I think I'm getting old. I think I'm getting old. Do you hurt yourself getting out of bed? I think I almost broke a hip. Okay, well, yeah, it sounds about about right for mid-30s. I, I think recording the episode on your birthday would have lent a very interesting dynamic, and that would have been a significantly more whiskey-soaked episode. I have whiskey right now, so we're okay. I, I've still got this single ball. I am making my way through, and... What's a more fitting time than the day after your uh, birthday to be continuing on a whiskey stream? And Nick, <laughs> you're from Bad Movies We Love, and it's a podcast I have listened to, and I know every podcast has to find a niche. It's something that gravitates the audience towards you. And it's quite an interesting concept, and one I very much think is very effective. So Bad Movies We Love, why exactly did you choose Bad Movies We Love as a concept? That is a question i have not really thought about so i'm gonna try and piece it together here but i mean it's very self-explanatory so that helps right yep. um because i had started the shice podcast which was part of the shice website and that was more focused on sort of interviews and then i used that to do some sports uh as well and then i sort of incubated this other idea for bad movies we love and that became its own thing spun off into its own show but i guess the idea came from 
generally my love for movies that uh would be considered probably less than i mean most of the stuff is not stuff where you're looking at it and you're like okay they made this like for two dollars in somebody's basement kind of bad movie but it's stuff that's generally ill-received by critics um and i think it's important to acknowledge as film fans that you know, it's okay to like things that uh, are not considered to be good, and it's okay to just like things to like them, and that's fine. And I would say also that there was a book that came out that was published by a couple of writers that my mom knew, and that mo- that book was Bad Movies We Love. And so I kind of like embraced that concept at a very young age, and so when I had the chance to sort of do something in that neighborhood, I jumped at it. See, I love that because like me and Wayne, for example, we love, we love the bad cinema of Ed Wood, Plan 9 from Outer Space, or especially for me here, Herschel Gordon Lewis, Mm -hmm. the 60s work of Herschel Gordon Lewis, whether that's Blood Feast, 2000 Maniacs, things that in their time are considered unsavory and tasteful, but they make an imprint on cinema. You could argue, you could argue for argument's sake that without Blood Feast, there is no Eli Roth. Now, some people may think that's a positive, Mm -hmm. but we're going to take the high road or the low road here, Nick, and we're going to say, no, fuck it. We need the Eli Roths. We need the bad taste makers. Something as well that uh, your podcast brings up, Nick, and I think this is a very important thing. This is something I've always said about cinema in that you should never feel obligated to like or dislike a movie. If one film is heralded as the greatest film of all time, but you don't like it, that's good. Don't bend your opinion. Likewise, if a movie is absolutely maligned by everybody, you shouldn't feel the need to say you don't like it. Like Michael Bay films, everybody makes fun of those, but if you watch a Michael Bay film and you really like it, I don't think you should feel ashamed of that. So that's what I like about that concept so much. I'm not sure, Wayne. There is times when shame has to come into it. There's, there, there is times when, like, okay, we get it, we get. It. There is no, there is no objective reality where somebody can like this film. But you know, it takes different strokes for different folks. So, okay, bad movies. We love Nick. What is the film that somebody has brought to you that you thought, okay, this is terrible? but I'm going to give it an open mind. And then when you've watched it, it might, it might not even be on the podcast itself, and you've thought fuck this. This is objectively (laughs) absolutely terrible. I don't know. I mean, the movie that surprised me the most, I would say, is uh, Freddy Got Fingered because (laughs) I I had seen it when I was younger and I was just like, eh, like I I didn't really like understand it. So I couldn't take it in with any with anything, really. It just happened and I watched it and it became this sort of joke and one of the most disliked movies of all time and then in watching it again like i all i had a tough time getting through the first few minutes and (laughs) then once i sort of got on board with what that movie was attempting to do i i understood tom green a little bit better having listened to tom green talk more over you know the decades since freddy got finger came out i i have a better appreciation for sort of his uh style as a comedian i've seen him do stand-up so it gave me a different context to view that film through and like you know whether or not it's a good movie bad movie i was able to enjoy it in a way that i didn't before and i appreciate it a lot more for that 
for me, I think the most challenging experience in terms of someone saying, here's a terrible film I like, I think you should watch this. They did think it was genuinely a great film. Have you heard of, it's a British film, Nick, you may not have heard of it. It's called Sex Lives of the Potato Men. No, but it sounds like it's up my alley. (laughs) Infamous film, Nick. Definitely watch it. It's the kind of film where you'd almost imagine back in the day, like British newspapers would have taken out a campaign against it. Mm. It would have inflamed the Mary Whitehouses of the world. Someone we have discovered, discussed at length on this podcast, but that film, I remember sitting watching that in just wide-eyed disbelief. My mate was killing himself laughing because he genuinely loves that film. And yeah, there's some bits... It's not even a horror film. No, it's not even a horror film. Some bits are quite funny, but I was sitting watching it thinking, how the hell have we stooped to this? How has our culture stooped to this level? Sometimes you just have to get down in the mud and roll around, man. It's fun. (laughs) See, I always think there is a catharsis to cinema. It's like any art. Nothing has to be um, highfalutin, so to speak. There needs to be the sludge. There needs to be the low art. There needs to be the outsider art. We need to express, you know, different avenues of what is acceptable in many ways. Now, speaking of acceptable, Nick, what are the films... The when you were a young man, when you were a young little Nick, you know, you were in your diapers, you were toddling about. What were the films that you know tickled you? What was the films that got you into this onto this road of cinephilia, so to speak? That's a good question. I don't consider myself uh, a cinephile in that way. Um, mm. I, I look at myself as a film lover. Uh, I like same thing. I don't really <laughs> eh, almost F- uh, philias yeah. have a negative connotation. <laughs> A lot of the time, so I'm not into the philias, but I, I would say it's like I, I collected a lot of physical media for a while. Like my collection served almost as like a rental store for a lot of my friends. They come over, I'd be like, "You can borrow it, just check it out, so I know that you have it," kind of thing. And then, like, I didn't want to replace all those things with Blu-rays, so it, it sort of like stopped. And I tried to be less materialistic, but that just spilled over into other things. But one of those films that really shaped, I guess my taste in film and my entire future was the movie we're going to talk about today and that's RoboCop because mm. I saw it when I was maybe three or four years old yes. wow. uh, yeah my mom showed it to me <clears throat> and I loved it but also she made fun of me for crying at the end when <laughs> Bodiger is impaling RoboCop with this giant like uh, ply bar and Watching it as an adult, I'm like, of course I was crying. That's a horrid scene. And it's super violent. And RoboCop in general is very, very violent. But uh, it's also an incredible sci-fi film. And so I think it also sent me on the road to sort of having... I I think with other people that I know, they sort of have the similar bias or preference towards horror films and the horror genre. I have that with sci-fi. Why sci-fi specifically? Do you know, or is is there a kind of a guiding force that drove you that way? I I mean, as I'm older, I've been able to contextualize a little bit better. And for me, I sort of have an affinity for speculative, uh, future i would say so what i like about sci-fi is sort of seeing the interpretation of what people think the future may or may not look like and then also what i enjoy about the genre especially low budget sci-fi is that how does the filmmaker go about convincing me as the audience that this is either set in the future 
or that there's a particular technology that exists that uh, will convince me that I'm actually in this world that's happening. And when there's not a lot of money to make that happen, you have to be smart about your budget, your set design, like very small particular things that add up in the production design that really speak to me for whatever reason. So are you talking sci-fi films that have just come out within your lifetime? Or are you talking like going back to movies like sci-fi films in the 50s, like your Invasion of the Body Snatchers and your The Day the Earth Stood Still, the kind of films that look at the future that we're now living, did those also appeal to you? Not at that time, no, because I was thinking I was a little bit too young for that then, but I've seen uh, stuff like War of the Worlds, Invasion of the Body Snatchers since then, and I do still have an affinity for that, and uh, Day the Earth Stood Still is another one. I, I, I like going back now and seeing stuff that was made, say, like 60s, 70s, and how they see the yep. next 10 to 15 years going, and how they sort of interpret something being scary in the near future and then living in the present now, and it's just an interesting time capsule uh, experience to see things like that. I mean, Cronenberg obviously has done a lot of that stuff in uh, the 80s and sort of speculating about what the not-too-distant future is going to look like, which I also think is sort of like its own subgenre within sci-fi where it's like we're talking about the future but really we're talking about like 10 years from now and like because the commentary in a film like that is like how much of a slippery slope we're actually on right now before we could end up in something like this i think one of my favorite examples of bad future predictions in movies is back to the future part two which the future portions of that film are set in 2015 and it's like totally out there fashion and totally out there restaurants and flying cars are a common thing and we're still, like, it got to 2015 like we don't have any of this so like, someone made this good point they were watching these old sci-fi films and they said it's incredible when you watch sci-fi films of not even that long ago and they're predicting this like this they call it like a jetson's future but yeah he says he says when i think of the future all i'd imagine is people like in their homes watching like slightly bigger TVs with a slightly higher resolution. I'm not imagine I'm not ima I'm not imagining this like this back to the future part 2 kind of scenario. Yeah, I'm still waiting on those hoverboards. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> so I I know on your podcast uh, Nick recently especially you've been covering the works of Paul Verhoeven, the director of RoboCop, mm -hmm. and I think if I believe I'm correct, you've been venturing to the works of Showgirls and Starship Troopers. So how did that go? How does that what did you think reliving them films? What I had watched Showgirls at the beginning of the year as part of a different project for a different podcast that I never actually yep. started. And so I was watching uh, just stripper movies. And <laughs> this is a project that I was watching with my fiance, though. She was on board. What, was this research? Nick? It was research. It was definitely yeah, it was, research. It was, but yeah. I think it started when uh, Magic Mike 3 came out and she wanted to see it. I was like, well, I'm not going to see Magic Mike 3 without mm -hmm. seeing Magic Mike 1 and 2. So then I was like, well, I'll trade you. I'll watch all the Magic Mikes, but you need to watch Striptease, Showgirls, and I forgot what the third one that we put on there was. I think it was Hustlers, which we put a pause in that project, so we never really finished okay, it. But okay. So I had watched Showgirls then, and then some friends of mine wanted to cover it for Bad Movies We Love because it is a notoriously panned film. Yep. But it's sort of entered its reappraisal phase now. And so talking about Showgirls was interesting because when I watched it at the beginning of the year, I didn't really have a great time with it. I felt like of the stripper movies that I watched, it was the worst of them. 
And so, really? yeah. And then, you know, stepping back and sort of giving it time. And then I watched it again. I'm like, I'm going to be fair. I'm not going to just like rely on what I felt like six months ago. And giving it another chance, I felt differently about it. And then talking to my friends that came on the show, uh, Ben and Nick's, they were able to sort of engage me in a conversation that really did pull me a lot further from the brink than I was probably when uh, they told me they wanted to cover Showgirls. So I think it's an interesting piece of Verhoeven's history, and mm. it definitely was something that he didn't expect to maybe not find the financial success that it didn't have at the time. I mean, it was successful, but because it was NC-17, it could only be so successful in theaters. And then he goes from that into doing Starship Troopers. And so you see in Starship Troopers, he's going back to the stuff that he did with Robocop, with Total Recall, and making it bigger and badder and crazier than he had ever done before. So I think in that way, just to get that piece of context really helped my understanding of him and in talking about starship troopers and learning more about uh his past his childhood in the netherlands under nazi occupation and sort of his uh satirical approach to how he looks at sort of like authoritarianism and uh just uh excuse me violence as the ultimate authority yeah coming from that background and then watching robocop now i was like oh wow like i guess a lot of this stuff was just here and I didn't really like have the context to understand mm. it despite having seen Robocop I don't know 30 40 50 times probably well that, well that's an interesting point you bring up like you mentioned your friends uh Nick's and Ben and how they can you know inform your taste so to speak in cinema that you have maybe already given up on so to speak so to speak for the case of argument and that kind of brings into the the realm of subjectivity and this is what we're always trying to express within this podcast for example and you're saying so you had a negative opinion of this film they brought a new perspective you saw it a different way so do you think with film there is always subjectivity because i always say and i've said this several times on the podcast or whatever there is no bad films there is only 20 years and I think that is kind of true. Everything at some point will be reappraised. It's like the works of, you know, Herschel Gordon-Lewis, for example, how his films were seen as low-grade trash. But eventually, they will become as trailblazers. They'll be, you know, harbingers of the next Eli Roths. And I think you're saying that yourself, that you may have missed something in Showgirls, for example. And then with Nix and Ben, you saw something in it you maybe didn't see before. So are you suggesting that there's something within cinema that there is always something somebody can cling to? Yes, I think what has changed most since I started writing about films back in 2016 is that there's always something positive or I at least go into films thinking that there's always something positive to take away because for the yeah. most part nobody sets out to make a bad film and so really? there was this sort of I don't know culture of critics that only wanted to tear things down and do it in a way that elevated themselves and like their writing style so that it's like, hey, I'm 
always going to be critical of everything, but I'm like funny in the way that I do it. And so it's like, look, I understand if that's your thing. And like that would get a lot of clicks and a lot of response and all that. But I, I just took a step back and I, I put myself in the shoes of the filmmaker. Like if I was making a film, how would I want somebody to sort of receive it or approach watching it? And so I try to watch movies with that in mind. And I yes. maybe I'm more um, optimistic than I used to be, but I always look at the sort of positive thing about a film over the negative thing. Even when there's negative things that bother me about it, I try to focus in on the things that I like. And I think that's one of the things that Roger Ebert did really well, uh, is that even when he didn't like something, he always took the time to compliment the thing that he did like. And in the case of Showgirls, I'll say that, look, when I was 13, I loved Showgirls, right? But <laughs> I wonder why. I wonder, why, why was that, Nick? Um, I don't know. You've got to fill in the blanks on that one. I, I'm going to give the audience credit for figuring that out on their own. But it, it was, it was like, Kyle McLaughlin. <laughs> Kyle oh, McLaughlin and his right. stupid haircut, yes, 100%. Uh, but I would say that there was a long time between when I had watched it in adolescence and then watched it in adulthood. And then like in my early twenties, I was like, okay, like I like the style. I like sort of the like aggressiveness and the, yeah, the yeah. creative freedom that Verhoeven brought into this film. And he really doesn't care what the people think too much with this movie. And I appreciated that. And then in watching it with a lot of other stripper movies for that purpose. And that was more recently. I just found that, Quote unquote. Uh, yeah, I, I just found that, of the other movies I watched, they had more like clearly identified through lines and like they're just a little yep. bit more concise and a good thing, enjoyable films where like Showgirls, it's like everybody sucks in Showgirls, like <laughs> yeah. except for her friend who unfortunately is victimized in that film. But like she sucks, all the male characters in that movie suck. So it's like a weird watching experience. Um, but I think it does do some things particularly very well. And that speaks to kind of like Verhoeven's skill behind the camera and his overall approach to making films that have like that satirical element to them. I think it's very true what you say about critics jumping on the hate train because people you know, want to get their names in the headlines. It's like people who praise a film they know is going to be popular, so it gets the name on the posters or it gets the name on the DVD case or whatever. With, subs, with Showgirls, it's hard to argue that Verhoeven's made a more divisive film because there was actually in 2019 a documentary called You Don't Know Me, mm -hmm. as in Know Me from Showgirls, which is one of the most fascinating movie documentaries I've ever watched because it's incredible. I watched Showgirls, I can't remember when, I remember having just very kind of blasé reaction to it. I wasn't this way or this way. But you watch this documentary, people writing think pieces, people writing articles about it. Some were like, it's mega anti-feminist. This other person, it's mega pro-feminist. And mm -hmm. then you said before, pretty much every dude in it is an asshole. Liam and I covered a movie, Miss 45 by Abel Ferrara. Mm -hmm. Every guy in that yep. is an asshole as well. And it had a point to it. But with, with Showgirls, it's incredible how people can have these incredibly disparate reactions to one film. And the reception has grown over time. Paul Verhoeven famously accepted his Razzie Award. He was a very good sport about it, like Tom Green did for Freddie Got Fingered. He's like, this was our intention to win a Golden Raspberry <laughs> Award. And I doubt it because you said about people not intentionally making bad movies. But with Verhoeven, I think a lot of people do underestimate him as a director because of films like Showgirls. Because people often talk about Alfred Hitchcock's one, two, three punch. In a row, Alfred Hitchcock directed... 
Vertigo, North by Northwest, and then Psycho. Verhoeven, one, two, three, he did Robocop, Total Recall, and Basic Instinct. So that's a hell of a resume. Three films in a row, mind you. Showgirls is the weak link there. Like, that's a pretty strong weak link, I would mm-hmm. say. So I, th- I think that does speak to the quality of Verhoeven's uh, filmmaking in general. So if anybody's wondering why we keep going about Showgirls, it's because Nick from Bad Movies We Love has brought to us this week as we usually do with our guests is he's brought us robocop his decision his choice so why exactly nick have you chose robocop well we talked about it a little bit at the outset in that this was a movie that i saw very young it was a movie that shaped sort of my movie watching habits uh especially as i got into my you know teens and 20s and i started connecting with the part of me that really likes sci-fi but one of those other movies i watched was like um wizard of oz was another one i watched a lot when i was really young so i love the just like the big color and the characters and sort of like how those two things coexist i think although robocop is a fairly gray toned movie in terms of like its visual aesthetic uh it's very colorful figuratively in its characters in its design and i just think i mean i don't throw the word around lightly but i think robocop is a masterpiece level film uh it's incredibly intelligent and it's way ahead of its time and just seeing sort of like its commentary not just on policing and uh the privatization of public services like the police force in general, but it it frames the necessity as sort of like this cloak where if we don't pay attention as the public and we allow certain things to be privatized, it becomes this runaway machine very, very quickly. Yeah. And so I think it was a great piece of social satire. I think it's also just a incredible action movie when it wants to be peter weller is amazing in this movie i mean kirkwood smith is amazing in this movie so it really just like scratches a lot of particular itches that i have (laughs) when it comes to filmmaking uh so and I, i posted that thing that you guys responded to you didn't respond to it but you liked it on x as i was watching it last night i said i wish I had all the doors in my house make that cool electronic whooshing sound <laughs> when I walk through the door. So I, who, who you know, I think one day. So something I find very fascinating about this film is it came of an age when Orion Pictures was a a studio to be messed with. And now, weirdly, in a co-symbiotic relationship, and this is a very peculiar situation, I should say. This morning, this very morning, I know I was late to the game, but I finished the third episode of the Netflix documentary, Don't Fuck With Cats. Mm. Now, if anybody has seen that, that killer has based their whole kind of M.O., on the film Basic Instinct, the way he subverts and gets himself around the authorities, the way he sets himself up and puts his alibis in in Basic Instinct names, is very much Paul Verhoeven. Now, so for this film, I'm going to play a trailer because I think this comes very importantly into the very, the, the mode, the mode, let's say, of Orion Pictures. We get the best of both worlds. 
fastest reflexes modern technology has to offer, onboard computer-assisted memory, and a lifetime of on-the-street law enforcement programming. It is my great pleasure to present to you... Robocop. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Old Detroit has a cancer. Cancer is crime. Let the woman go, you are under arrest. You, you better back up, pal! Your move, creep. What are your prime directives? You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney. Anything you say may be used against you. He's a cyborg, you idiot. Recorded every word you said. You're dead. We killed you. His memory is admissible as evidence. You're gonna have to kill it. Get in the car, for God's sake! <laughs> So that trailer, because it's Orion Pictures for Robocop, is released around about the same time as Terminator. But of course, James Cameron's Terminator preceded Robocop, and for whatever reason, I am not sure, in the trailer for Robocop, they use the theme music from Terminator. Hmm. Okay, so what do you think of that? Uh, I think it's several years apart, so why are Orion Pictures using the same theme tune from Terminator's Brad Friedel, I believe it is, to Robocop, who has a great score? So why are they reusing it? I was wondering, is it just because it was so recognisable? Because the Terminator score, it's not massively memorable, it's not massively famous, but those da-dun-dun-dun-dun, those notes are so iconic. I wonder if they put them in then and they said, you know, you liked Terminator, so you like Robocop. You could argue that they share quite a lot of similarities. I wonder if it was doing that, if it was trying to kind of evoke the spirit of Terminator and say, you like Terminator, then you'll love Robocop. Well, I believe with Orion Pictures, they were Orion Pictures was formed by three ex-members of United Artists. So when they left United Artists, they were like, okay, we're going to start a new company and Orion Pictures was the company. So if United Artists, they were very famous throughout the 70s, were producing auteur pictures, let's say, for example. And, you know, once it gets into the 80s, I know a lot of people have problems with the 80s. Quentin Tarantino <laughs> being famously hates the 80s. He says it's the worst decade after the 50s because you have to always give the... Uh, uh, you always have to give the audience hope. It very was commercialized. It was very, you know, sanitized. It was Back to the Future when it was nostalgia. I, know, I like Back to the Future. I'm, I'm just saying in Quentin Tarantino's eyes. But it was very nostalgia driven. And, you know, I, I kind of see that as a point. You know, we had the 70s. We had five easy pieces. We had the late 60s Easy Rider. We had these personal pictures what were almost in an Americanized way mimicking the French New Wave. They were telling these independent personal stories about American history about American, you know, the character of America. And then the 80s come and it was about nostalgia. We had Back to the Future going back to the 50s. We had the Gremlins, of course, what was some ways going back to the 50s also, you know, the, the very much the Suburbanites, the Reaganites. Then you had 
the George Lucas, you had the Steven Spielbergs, or even harkening even way further back to the American serials of the 20s and 30s. So it was very much this decade of nostalgia. And, you know, look, Robocop, Paul Verhoeven, he's a Dutch filmmaker, he's very much attacking this, and the screenwriters were attacking this, and it is a pointed attack, they've admitted themselves. This is an attack on the Reaganomics of that era. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's pretty damn clear, and I think especially watching it last night, it stood out to me a little bit more, not just the condemnation of, like, privatization of uh, public resources, but also... Uh, just like kind of blind militarism and how you got a character like Dick Jones who, you know, he shouts in this movie, like, who cares if it worked? Like we had like the military contracts in place, spare parts for 20 years. It doesn't even matter if the thing that they're selling is a good thing as long as it sells. We were talking earlier about, like, Nick, your, like, formative films, films that formed your taste in film. For me, Orion was almost a studio that did that to me because I don't know about you, when you watch a film, they have the opening logos, those logos that give you a kind of nostalgia. The Orion logo... I must have seen it a hundred times when I was a kid, but there's like not a lot of movies I can say, I know it came from Orion Pictures. I just knew it and I liked it. It's like if I see like Coralco or if I seen Dilo De Laurentiis, something like that. But yep. there was a lot of films like uh, The Terminator, for example, Bill and Ted's, the first one, yeah. Yeah. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey, The Adams Family. These were all around pictures. They did yep. have quite a variety. They had the prestige films. You had like Amadeus, Platoon, Silence yeah. of the Lambs that made a lot of money. They, were, they had an interesting history because they really kind of leapfrogged back and forth between acclaim and box office success and then just massive losses. Like in the early 90s, films like Dances with Wolves, Adam's Family, Sounds the Lambs, those were big commercial hits, but they still couldn't recoup the losses that they'd, they'd suffered over the f- previous few years. And I think that's actually when they declared bankruptcy around that time. <laughs> Was it? Well, it's funny you say that because they did win four Best Picture Oscars, as you said, Amadeus, Platoon, mm. Dancing with Wolves, Silence of Lambs. But, you know, our comedy films, the favourite films we like win, Caddyshack, Bill and Ted. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean... This was a, a wide-ranging studio, so to speak, and a very interesting studio. It's like, it always reminds me of the studio in the 80s, Canon Films. And you'd have these logos working simultaneously. And, you know, as a as a young guy, as a, as a kid, I wasn't thinking of MGM. I wasn't thinking of Fox Studios. It was Robocop. It was Terminator. It was these kind of films and that kind of begs the question okay in the 1980s my vastly older brother my mother bought him the vhs robocop now he's about 10 years older than me and because it is such a silly title of a film she was like okay i'll buy you robocop it's a kid's film never mind (laughs) so she bought him the vhs robocop and she's like uh when she got back she was like "Eh, you know this is kind of violent Mm -hmm. because it is is a terribly silly silly title to the film yeah and this is kind of what I'm thinking, you know, how many times as a kid did we have Robocop toys, Terminator toys, etc.? And it kind of begs the question, what has happened? Why were these films almost seductively marketed towards a child audience? Because they kind of were, because they were kind of riffing on comic books in many ways. That, I mean, that's a fair question. I think the easy answer is that, you know, it replaced sort of the role that westerns had where you know it's sort of vigilante justice there's a lot of guns it's very rugged it's very masculine and then sort of as that footprint 
kind of began to fade a little bit, you needed to fill that void with something. And like you had mentioned, like the 70s were a very uh, particular era for American cinema. And then sort of like the 80s is a lot of falling action, but there is a lot of reactionary stuff in the 80s as well. And you're still looking for that kind of foothold in the demographics that would have been, I would say, attracted to Westerns. But I also love Westerns, so maybe that's just my personal preference, but I feel like that's a fairly decent uh, rationale behind it. I think one of the reasons is because if you're talking about children's toys, you can very much position it as the classic good versus evil battle, because kids will do that. You set up toys on this side, you set up toys on this side. You think of toys like, for example, the Terminator. You can have the Terminator, and then you can have... Kyle Reese. With the Alien films, you can have the Alien toys. I remember mm. Alien toys as a kid. You have the Alien yep. toys and you have the Marines. Then with Robocop, you have Robocop and the bad guys. And when you have something like this, these films which are extremely violent, you can water it down. Like, you know, Robocop's not shooting bullets, he's shooting lasers. The Terminator's <laughs> shooting lasers, something like this. So I think because it's that, for kids, it's that very accessible black and white morality. Here's Robocop, here's yeah. the good guy. Here's some toys of the bad guys. Let's make them fight Robocop win so i think even though these films are massively violent also heavily satirical which we'll get into later on i think the fact that they still have that very clear good guy and bad guy thing in children's minds at least i think that's why they're so easy to market to children you could call it i guess the star wars effect you got luke skywalker versus darth vader yeah you're essentially talking about like cowboys and indians i mean i know that's not like you know politically correct anymore to say it that way but like you said it's very tribal of just here these are the good guys these are the bad guys i played with uh like army men the little green plastic army men a lot when i was a kid so very like simple easy to understand uh and you sort of like you have this fascination with guns that Mm, i mean it's very american but (laughs) (laughs) at, at the same time it's something that you sort of just very readily accept and understand, like when it comes through the screen. So like even if you're a kid, you're not necessarily taking the the deeper message away or you're not necessarily growing up to be like a, a Second Amendment truther or anything like that. But you, yeah. you understand that like the good guy has his weapon similar to how uh, like a He-Man had a sword or Thundercats or something like that. So each character that you're associating with sort of has their identifiable uh tools of the trade absolutely and this film is 1987 it was made on a 13.7 million budget now this film was screenwritten by edward newmeyer now he was a junior executive at the universal pictures here's the thing he joined the production of blade runner as an unofficial member of crew to learn about filmmaking now newmeyer he was a fan of sci-fi and he was into mature let's quote unquote comic books and aspired to be a screenwriter now during this period he wrote a 40 page treatment around the idea and this is prevalent to this film a far distant blade runner type world where there was an all mechanical cop coming to a sense of real human intelligence now within this span newmeyer he came across a student video by director michael minor who i think at the time was making a music video now whilst he was at universal newmeyer met with michael minor they discussed their similar concepts of course in this 
student film and this music video, Michael Meyer was trying to make this film, in his words, was called Super Cop. <laughs> sounds quite similar. So they got together, and over a three-month period, they wrote Robocop. Now, I think that's important, because as we're saying, as Wayne was stating, as Nick was stating, there's a moral black and white area here. There is a good guy and there's a bad guy, and there's not much in between. There's not much moral ambiguity. And I think this comes from the whole comic book world. And I think this is pertinent to this story, because as Paul Verhoeven said... He approached this film in many ways from different angles. At first, he wanted there to be a love story between Murphy and Lewis, but then he realized, no, that is ridiculous. This is a black and white story. This is a comic book story, and that's what I have to lean into. Now, I'm going to throw it to you, Nick. If you had to summarize, what would you summarize as the very basic plot, the plot of this film? I would say that this is sort of like on the surface a revenge story, but. It's about a cop who gets shot in the line of duty, trying to be a hero and be a good role model in a world where there aren't good role models. And, you know, he pays with his life, but in the end, he sort of has a chance at at least some bit of redemption, but it's more like revenge than it is redemption. And I think the thing that really draws me to RoboCop more and more as I've grown older is uh, the psychological aspect behind the revenge story in that as many times as I've seen this, I don't know if I was as affected by the scene where he dies because like he's the main character like he's he comes back as RoboCop so maybe I just didn't really like feel his death but in that scene, like his life is flashing before his eyes, he's flatlining, he literally dies, and then the next scene he wakes up and everything is all digital. And just to like understand like how frightening and how scary that is for him, but also to sort of be yeah. in this world where something like that could happen, where they flippantly say, like, oh, are we gonna like keep the arm or not? <laughs> oh well, he yeah. he signed the release when he joined the police force. So sort of another just like little criticism of privatizing the police force and what that could potentially <laughs> oh, lead yes. to. Uh, so I really connected with that stuff on a much deeper level the more and more I got into the film. This film has become synonymous with Paul Verhoeven, the director of Basic Instinct, Total Recall, Showgirls, as we've already mentioned. But the first director to be approached was Jonathan Kaplan. Now, if our audience doesn't necessarily know who Jonathan Kaplan is, he was the director of The Fantastic. Now, I don't know if you have seen it, but I know this was one of Kurt Cobain's favourite films, Over the Edge. He was the first director on board, but he left when he was offered. He was offered, Nick. Project X starring Matthew Broderick of the same year. Now, who the fuck leaves Robocop for Project X? I don't know. I'm going to throw it to you. Has anybody seen Over the Edge? It is a fantastic coming-of-age film. It is this great suburban film where, you know, the, the, the teenage residents of that little suburbia, they overtake their parents, they overtake their school principals, for example, and they run amok, and they overtake them over the oppression. This is Kurt Cobain's favourite film, Over the Edge, directed by Jonathan Kaplan. Has anybody seen this film? It's great. I haven't I have seen, it, no. seen it, that does sound, It does sound like a fascinating premise. I like that kind of exaggerated idea of let's be kids and let's live in a world where there aren't rules. Yeah, it's kind of like a Lord of the Flies energy mm. that, I mean, I love that book, so. Jonathan Kaplan, he, he didn't get this role. He didn't get this 
part. He dropped out. He wanted to do Project X with Matthew Broderick. You know, you know, whatever. I have no, I have no idea. <laughs> Let, let's just summarize that. I have no idea. So Paul Verhoeven, he said, when he accepted this film, he said, in the case of Robocop, I got the script while I was still in Europe. Now, this is his second English language film, Paul Verhoeven. Previously, he made Flesh and Blood, but I think it was outside the Hollywood system. So he got this script while he was still in Europe. And I threw it away. He threw the script away because I thought it was so childlike and infantile. And it was only when my wife, (laughs) his wife, started to read it and said, you should read it again because there's a lot of extra layers that you're neglecting. It might not be what you think. So he gave it a second chance. He said, look, this is fucking stupid. This is a film called Robocop. As we said, this is a stupid title. It's a a Quinn to fucking Supercop. Now, Paul Verhoeven, he's, he's direct at this point, you know, 10 or so Dutch films. He's outside the Hollywood system. This isn't necessarily his bag, so to speak. He's made flesh and blood with Rutger Hauer. But he's not necessarily delved into the sci-fi world. He thinks it's ridiculous, but he's like, you know, okay, let's see what we can work with. You know, we'll work from there. Let's see where we go. I think a big, dumb action movie was the term he actually used to describe it, which is, it's a disparaging remark you hear a lot nowadays because there are lots of big, dumb action films that don't have anything going on below the surface. It's a similar story to, do you ever hear about when Stephen King wrote his first book, when he wrote Carrie? I think he crumbled up and threw the first page away and his wife yep. picked it out of the bin and said, no, you need to finish this. And that book became Carrie. So it's interesting, there's weird little connections between those two completely different people. Nancy Allen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think that like on the surface, it's easy to dismiss Robocop yeah. because it is yeah. a title that doesn't really say much, right? And I think in a different director's hands, maybe it is just a big, dumb action movie <laughs> in that way. But in Verhoeven's hands, he was able to culture uh, this energy that this movie has that's like, the more I watched it last night, the more I felt like the world that he set this movie in is a world that's on the brink. And mm. you yep. see it yeah. in the very beginning when he introduces it like with the news section or the segment and you just sort of dive right into this world building yep. and it does such a great job, but it's like hey, this, these cops are getting killed, uh, there's a police strike going on, I mean, like, there's another segment later where they're like, hey, there's, you know, war going on in Africa or the Middle East somewhere, and then there's a commercial for a game where the kids, like, nuke each other, but it's a family game. Yeah. So it's telling, like, this, it's sort of like this boiling pot, and he said it in Detroit for a reason, and <laughs> I think, like, you know, the, the history of Detroit and poverty is pretty closely linked. So yep. using that as sort of like uh, a, a system to apply pressure to the story that he's telling, you look at a place that has poverty, that then produces crime, that, like, if left unchecked, is going to eventually end up going sort of the direction that RoboCop uh, ends up in. And so I think that's really where he looks at it. But you had mentioned Nancy Allen, and a a couple of years ago, there's an indie theater, there's a Lemley Theater out here, and they were doing uh, throwback stuff once a week. So each month it would be, like, a different theme. And once a week, they would do a different movie. And so one of those movies was RoboCop. And I went with Kristen, and she had never seen it. And Nancy Allen showed up to that screening. And people got to ask her questions at the end. And eventually, you know, I asked her something along the lines of, you know, when you saw this script come across your desk, obviously a title like RoboCop 
doesn't instill a lot of confidence. <laughs> but um, seeing the movie now, you know, I think it was 30, 30 something years later at that point. So seeing it then and seeing how well it held up and seeing like how well the audience still responded to it, I think says a lot about the film. And so I, I asked her, like, at what point did she know that they had stumbled across something special? And she said that she had loved the script, but I think it was the first time that they had seen dailies of uh, Weller in the suit when they shot, like, his introduction stuff that she was like, okay, we, we hit the tone right, and this is going to be something much bigger and have a much more long-lasting legacy than something titled RoboCop would normally have i think it's safe to say she was happier with the robocop suit than uh, paul weller was because from all the stories i read weller had just like the worst time because it was it's the classic things it's like the chewbacca suit from star wars it was too hot too heavy i think when they filmed him from the waist up it was he like just like there in his underwear because it was so <laughs> yeah. unbelievably hot and uncomfortable like you never see him getting into a car properly because they had to actually like cut away the side of the car to even fit him in it. Nancy Allen's one of them interesting actresses because she's kind of synonymous with Brian De Palma, mm. who was her partner at the time in the, I, I believe, the late 70s. So she was in Carrie as the you know, the main bully, for example. She was in Dressed to Kill. She was in Blowout. She was in all these great films. And when she came to this film with Paul Verhoeven for Robocop, she was second choice. I can't remember who the first choice was. But Paul Verhoeven said, look, you have to cut your hair short. She cut it short. She cut it short. He was like, look, shorter. And he kept saying shorter, <laughs> shorter, shorter. She wanted to desexualize her, in his own words, so much that she became almost, you know, androgynous. This mixture of masculine and feminine. Because she, he didn't want her to be at all a sexualized object. Which is, as you were saying, you've covered showgirls. It's very stark contrast to what Verhoeven is used to. Especially, you know, we have... His recent film, Benedetta, which is essentially a non-exploitation film. But I find that very interesting, this contrast. He knew what this material wanted. He knew the world he was setting this film within. He knew this was in, you know, 80, 1987. He knew this was a, a masculine, a macho, an alpha male type world. And he knew Nancy Allen's character of Lewis had to be in quote-unquote terms, masculine. Because we talk about Paul Verhoeven in terms of gratuity. He's famous for his gratuitous violence and his gratuitous nudity, but he clearly knows when it needs to be downplayed for effect. I mean, he is famous for having quite, like, would say, like, tough female characters in his films, because we have Nancy Allen in this, you have Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct, and Total Recall, both being, like, very, very tough characters. But obviously, they were, like, in Sharon Stone's case, she was the kind of the, the sexualized main character with Nancy Allen yeah it was very much paired back because does she not spend pretty much all of the film just like in cop wear like the long trousers and the bulletproof vest and everything so yeah really worked very well his his aim for this character yeah absolutely and I think you know when we're introduced to her she's like in a physical conflict with someone that she has arrested and then she's introduced to Murphy for the first time and I think especially because of Verhoeven's history <clears throat> and sort of the knee-jerk reaction to put a love interest in this story in the way that you had in Terminator with Sarah and Kyle Reese or yeah. other action films of the time. Like, you know, Stallone movies typically have a love interest, Van Damme, Schwarzenegger to some extent, a lot of those as well. So to sort of like subvert that expectation and to make her this like strong leading woman 
and to put her in a super like a hyper masculine world uh i think was a really smart choice and it pays off and even her name like lewis it's you know is it her first name is it her last name i mean i assume it's her last name but they do sort of like treat her as just one of the boys and i think when you look at something like starship troopers he has that shower scene in Starship mm-hmm. Troopers where it's like everybody's just kind of on the same level, but there is a lot of nudity there. So I think he carried some of that attitude from the Robocop locker room over into when he made Starship Troopers. Well, you don't actually know how right you are, the Nick, because the reason that there is so much nudity in the shower scene in Starship Troopers is because we didn't get to do enough of it in this film, because in this film, mm. <laughs> it's co-ed locker rooms, and you'll pause, it, the camera pans over two yeah. women who are topless, but nobody notices, no one comments anything because it's fully co-ed locker rooms, so I believe he wanted to do more with that scene, he didn't get to, so he did Starship Troopers. Also, honestly, fun little factor here, that whole Starship Troopers shower scene, he filmed that, while him and I believe the director of photography were both naked because the actors were kind of really because the actors were kind of yeah. having a hard time bit uncomfortable is it look i'll strip down if you'll strip down dutchman <laughs> why is my boss naked in the shower with me <laughs> exactly he's dutch does, don't worry does, about it does that does that does that work anywhere <laughs> else but a film set i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> probably but yeah, it's like, as you said, like Paul Verhoeven comes onto this set, he comes onto this film that he didn't necessarily, he, he didn't want to take. Nancy Allen comes on, she's from De Palma's world, which is, uh, in, a, in many ways, a highly sexualized world. We have Peter Weller. Now, Peter Weller, for anybody who is unconcerned with him or unknown of him, I mainly know him. I don't know if you guys have seen... Have you seen David Cronenberg's film Naked Lunch, where he's essentially playing William Burroughs? Now, that is a terrific film. Now, David Cronenberg, of course, he's a he's a great auteur, if we should speak, Canadian filmmaker, very interesting filmmaker, body horror, etc. But Naked Lunch is a terrific film, much more in the vein of crash it's very skewed it's very unlike crash but i'm what i mean it's not a body horror it's not a horror film i wouldn't specifically say have any of you guys familiar with naked lunch i haven't seen it yet i know like the poster and i know kind of the central concept it's one of those films i've always wanted to get around to seeing if you were to say to me paul weller i would say robocop and naked lunch even though i haven't seen the latter yet now, with Peter Weller as the central character in this film, he is playing Robocop and Murphy, which is kind of a dual role. He studied, I think, four months, was it four months, with the mime artist Moni Yakim. Now, he'd done this to be able to choreograph his actions for Robocop. I think he went a little overboard because <laughs> Paul Verhoeven reined him in a bit. He was like, look, dude, we don't need the ballet tricks. We don't need anything special. You know, just just play him as you think you would. And this goes into many of the cast in this film because one of our antagonists, uh, Kurtwood Smith, who is, I always refer to Wayne, as Red Foreman in that 70s show, he is casting this film against type. Now, Kurtwood Smith was an actor who, typically before this film, he played intellectual characters. Now, in this film, specifically in this film, Verhoeven, he decided on giving Kirkwood Smith those rimless glasses as it looked quite intellectual, mm. and he juxtaposed this with him being a crime boss. And he thought, and this was Paul Verhoeven's thought. Now he's Dutch, he's experienced, he's a you know, he's a he's an elderly man, he's not far off World War II, and he thought it gave Kirkwood Smith 
a Heimrich Himmler hmm. look. That is why he gave him the rimless glasses. I mean, that makes sense. He's a great villain in the film. and Terrific. Yeah, and you even have him like sort of wearing uh, like black and gray a lot, especially that suit that he wears when he goes to Joan's office uh, at the end. is very, very, very particular stylistic choice there. Well, it's interesting you say about Kurtwood Smith playing against type because it was the same for Ronnie Cox, who plays Dick Jones, the primary antagonist here, because mm-hmm. I was reading something about... Ronnie Cox, when he played the villain in this, and he would go on to play the role in the villain role in Total Recall, another Verhoeven film, and it was said that it was very strange because he was mostly known for playing protagonists. He was mostly known for his good guy roles, which is funny because for me it was the opposite way around. Because like he played the good guy Bogomil in Beverly Hills Cop. I seen Robocop and Total Recall before that. So for me, it was backwards. I knew Ronnie Cox <laughs> I knew Ronnie Cox as a villain before I knew him as a good guy. And obviously films like Deliverance as well, which I would watch later where he also plays a good guy. I think his presence as a villain uh maybe because he finally got to do something that was not necessarily in his wheelhouse or not something that he had done prior. It, it gave him a kind of freedom to really embody all of like the worst qualities of this character. And you see it on display very early. And when we first see Ed 209 get introduced into the conference room, like that shit is terrifying. Can you yeah. imagine Ed two hundred nine on every corner in your city, just like under complete military occupation, and mm-hmm. he's so cavalier about it? And then this poor guy who has to participate in the gun demonstration gets shot what a hundred times by <laughs> Ed two hundred nine and his thirty caliber machine guns, mm-hmm. and they just dust it off like, oh, it's just a glitch. We'll fix mm-hmm. it. Uh, it doesn't even matter that this guy died right here. So, you mm-hmm. you introduce his villainy in such a casual way that it really like puts him in this level of like sociopathy almost when we first meet him. And so like everything that comes out of that, like whether or not it's the heightened moments where he's like really extra aggressive or it sort of continues in that same vein where, you know, you pop Bodiger pops the I guess it's a DVD. He pops <laughs> he pops in the DVD into Bob Morton's uh, home stereo system, pops up those four little uh, TV monitors where he like casually tells him that like I'm gonna kill you now. Well, it's that kind of villain. Like you get the villain, you know, the kind of snarling, angry, evil villain. The kind will go and throttle the hero or you know try and track down the hero. But with Dick Jones, it's it's the businessman. I think he's supposed to be the kind of Gordon Gecko. He's the high-ranking businessman who can nevertheless totally fuck up your day, even if he's not doing it physically. He's the one that's making the decisions. He's the one saying, "We'll put Ed Two Hundred Nines up." Oh, there's a problem with the police force. Let's just put all these droids on. Oh yeah, they killed a guy in a demonstration, but you know it's just a glitch. It's okay. It shouldn't cost us too much money. So it's uh-huh. that kind of villain. That's the villain who's more less evil, kind of more immoral. Yeah, it's not as sharp of an evil, but it's a much more realistic evil. Now, we are always in the film world kind of gloss over the screenwriters. It's a big thing. You know, we miss out the screenwriters and we're talking about the satirization of Paul Verhoeven on American culture. But does he merit, does he get the merit on this film? Because it's very satirical. It's very uh, an attack on the corporate America structure, Reaganomics, for example. But in the original screenplay, Edward Neumeyer 
this was part of his script. So when we talk about the importance of Paul Verhoeven, when he gets the credit for the for the satirization, is that merited? Because Neumeier, he says it was in the script. He says the increasing ingression of the American financial system was part of why he wrote the script. Now, co-writer Michael Miner says the film is a takedown of the Reagan era when corporations were given carte blanche to essentially do what they wanted. Now, we are used, as you said, you've expressed Showgirls, the satirization, the Paul Verhoeven take. Are we giving him too much credit? Does a lot of the credit stand on the shoulders of those two screenwriters? I would say at least in part, of course, because right. like Verhoeven threw the script away. So <laughs> yes, yeah. he obviously missed something in it when he read it the first time. But I think what makes Robocop the kind of movie that has staying power is that you could just look at it like, hey, this is a like police propaganda kind of action movie and not even get into sort of like hmm. the psychological aspects of what it means to be brought back to life without your consent and then yeah. to have the memories of being a person while not actually still being a person and having to grapple with that and the loss of your family and really yeah. all of like the real deeply rooted sci-fi questions that get brought up in this film and you could just watch it as an action flick and not take right. more from that and so i think it is a happy coincidence that verhoven <laughs> was able to like find a way to align himself with the story that was yep. written and i think it may have informed his filmmaking style beyond this to be able to experiment in a way where this movie was m probably expected to fail or at least not be successful in the way that a Terminator was that had the star power of an Arnold Schwarzenegger behind it. Right, well, Verhoeven, he tried to revise the script. In one of his revisions of the script from Neumeier, he said, look, we need the love story. I am, I'm Dutch. This is what he said. I am Dutch. <laughs> we need the love story. We, we need the European angle. So in one of his uh, versions of the script, Lois, played by Nancy Allen, and Murphy, played by Peter Weller, they have a love interest story. And I kind of think it's better for not having that because yeah. it doesn't falls so much into sentimentality and it, it kind of plays on something a little different but you mentioned a second ago nick about you know the death of peter weller the death of murphy and of course you can't talk about this film without the obvious the obvious christ parallel the martyrdom of murphy now he is martyred. He is killed by Kirkwood Smith and his gang of posse, who includes Leland Palmer for, from Twin Peaks for some reason. I'm not sure why, but <laughs> he's there. He, he's there. So they're in a warehouse, an abandoned warehouse. Now, this film opens. This film opens with a stock footage, something they did not film, of the skyline of the city of Detroit. It was the only stock footage they used. The rest is filmed in Dallas, Texas. So they're in this warehouse. They come across these bad guys, uh, Murphy and Lewis. So they're looking through this warehouse. They come across uh, a gang, a gang, a crime boss and his gang. So what happens is they kill him. They kill Murphy. Now, he is killed off in a specific way, and I think this is important to this film. They shoot off his hand, which is very rare. It's 
reminiscent of the stigma of Christ. And when Murphy gets up to get killed, he stands with his arms spread out like the cross, like Jesus on the cross. And like I'm saying, this is very much the martyrdom of Christ. Now, if you're thinking, what the fuck does the director of Showgirls have to do with the martyrdom of Christ is? Well, he was a member of a... A biblical community, I believe. He was the only member there to be admitted without being a scholar of the Bible, as far as I'm aware. Does anybody know any different? Was that in his childhood? No, as an adult. Well, Verhoeven was a holy man who joined this um, Jesus... um, community and he was the only adult member we're we're talking about adult to be admitted who was not a biblical scholar did he show them benedetta i have no idea (laughs) did he did he have a screening of that in his biblical community i have no idea nick i have no idea well i think something's has, has something gone wrong here well did somebody at the time when robocop came out somebody said uh did you intend to have religious symbology in this film and verhoeven was like the lead character dies and comes back from the dead. How can you not say that's religious symbology? And when watching the film back, I actually picked up on a lot more things than I did beforehand. There's, of course, for example, Murphy walking on water later on. There's the bit where, as Nick mentioned earlier, when Clarence Bodiger hits him with a spear. That's like the Lance of Longinus, I believe it's called, when uh-huh. Jesus was speared. Also, he's seen as a savior to his people. That scene where he gets shot up at OCP headquarters, he's covered in scars, like the, like the passion story. So there's a lot more in there. It's not like very overt. I think even if you took the, out of the film... It wouldn't have lost loads, but it's like one of those nice little additions. Yeah, I'm reading right now. Verhoeven was a member of the Jesus Seminar, and he was the only member who does who does not have a degree in bi- biblical studies. He graduated with a degree in mathematics, this is from Wikipedia, people, <laughs> and physics from the University of Leiden. Since he is not a professional biblical exeget his membership in the jesus seminar has occasionally been cited by opponents of the seminar as a sign that this group is less scholarly than it claims (laughs) so now in 2007 now here's the fucked up thing in 2007 verhoven wrote a book called the jesus of nazareth about the life of jesus christ okay where does the fuck does this come in? Where where does Robocop, where does the Basic Instant guy... Because this isn't the first time the, the screenwriter of Basic Instant, Joe Esterhaas, has also become a renowned Christian also. What the hell happened in the early 90s, the late 80s? Oh, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> these, these guys were all just kind of reborn around about the same time after after spending all of their careers working in this kind of sleazy industry. They're like, nope, we're, go- we're, we're walking the righteous path from now on, lads. Was it too much cocaine? Is that <laughs> what we're going they for? They saw God. I think before- now Joe Esther Joe Esther has the screenwriter of Basic Instinct at the time the the richest screenwriter ever alive. I think he sold that script for three million dollars. He was writing a book about the Maccabees, uh, a screenplay about the Maccabees, and that was to be filmed for none other than Mel Gibson. Now Mel Gibson is another holy holy Catholic. Mm. Okay, what the hell has happened? Are these the- hey? Are these the Holy Trinity? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't go as far as to say that. Ver- Verhoeven, Esterhaus, and Gibson are the Holy Trilogy yeah. of Hollywood. The Holy, the Holy Trinity of fucked up. <laughs> they must be. But it's not just religious symbology, because when you look at a film like this, like Nick said, you can look at it as just a kind of fun action film, as a fun cop versus baddies film. But when you look deeper into it, there are so many 
great levels, so many great themes. Like the corporate greed is one we've mentioned earlier. Like, for example, uh, Nick mentioned that scene where poor Kenny gets shot by Ed 209. And then Bob, Bob Morton, who's, I guess, ostensibly Kenny's friend. Afterwards, when he's asked about it, Bob says, oh, life's a big city. So you've just watched this guy get shot in front of you, a friend of yours, a colleague of yours, and he doesn't even really care. And Dick Jones... I mean, the guy's literally called Dick for a start, but uh-huh. how he, he's portrayed as kind of the dark heart of the kind of corrupt mortality, morality of corporations. Oh, I had to kill Bob Morton because he made a mistake. Now it's time to erase that mistake. That's a great quote. And that scene is fantastic. But to mm-hmm. think of the kind of world that this film exists in, where you could watch your friend and coworker get violently, brutally murdered mm-hmm. right in front of you, and just be like, you know, it's Detroit. We're, we're, <laughs> I, I got to pitch my project now because obviously <laughs> there's an opportunity for me. But uh, Miguel Ferrer, since you brought him up, I mean, he's so good in this, like mm. as Bob Morton. And I oh, think yeah. to see like the quality of performances from this cast is really something that endears this movie to its audience and gives it longevity as well. Because like you said, on, on paper... If you're an actor and someone hands you a script that says RoboCop, like your agent may not even have you read this because it's called RoboCop. Uh, but when looking at like Peter Weller, he had come from like Buckaroo Banzai, but he was not like an Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> type of star for this. No. Like he, he wasn't a Stallone. So to to see this movie have the kind of success that it did with basically a collection of character actors kind of populating all of the main roles, it strikes me as a very 70s film, despite it being made in the <laughs> late 80s. It's very gritty. It's very dark. It's very personal to this one character. And I find it to be ultimately like very sad on occasion. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I told you I cried when I was like a three-year-old watching yeah. RoboCop get stabbed. But as an adult, watching the t- two scenes that really stand out are like when he first sort of encounters the guy at the gas station and it sparks something in his memory. Uh, and he goes to his home that's now up for sale and he's like having the flashbacks of the memories and starting to realize what's happened. And I think the more haunting scene later that really drives that earlier scene home is where Lewis first gives him that like rusty mirror after he takes his uh, visor off and like he's seeing his face for the first time in a long time and not only that but it's like it's attached to this giant metal chassis and just I'm thinking in that moment like I died trying to protect the public and then you took my brain and my body and turned me into a robotic police officer, but you left me with my face? Like, that's such a mind fuck at that point. And he has to sort of contextualize all that right before going into, like, the big fight at the end of the film. Well, that's the kind of human versus machine element of it. Like, another, another element you say about, you can watch this film a bunch of times and... Each time you'll still pick out someone different. I liked how Murphy is, you know, he's transformed into Robocop, but he's still having these flashbacks or are they memories, their visions of like his past life, of his family and what he did beforehand. But OCP said, he said, oh, we had his memory wiped. So it's like, okay, he had his memory wiped, but these things are still coming back. So for me, this was like, is this a case of 
humanity is just impossible to remove it's something intrinsically within ourselves so it doesn't matter how much wiping you do to make him into this machine like there's still a human element there always it's like it's ever present well interestingly as as we're talking about like you know the ar- allegorical structure of this film the the takedown of corporate america the takedown of you know the neoconservatism of the 1980s well i'm not sure if anybody picked up on this and i think it is quite an important detour into this film okay we have allusions to the vietnam war now we are probably what 10 12 15 years away removed from the vietnam war well the scientist the scientist who introduces us who presents ed 209 in the conference room is named mcnamara now mcnamara he was the u.s secretary of war during the vietnam war and here's here is even more important and the design of ed 209 was based on the bell uh 1h huey gunship the most used helicopter during the vietnam war so we're talking about the military industrial complex we're talking about corporate america we're talking about all these structural systems in place the the, the corporatism to in to generalize yeah and also just like in the wake of the the vietnam war there was a lot of civil unrest and so like i guess if you're starting at that point and projecting outwards and like that goes unchecked what does that lead to like private militarization you know militarism of the cops you've got ed 209 on every corner so i think i think it lines up pretty well well, Bob, who is, I guess you could call him a hero, anti-hero, he even refers to one to Murphy at one point as a product. So, like, he's not a human being anymore. He is a product. Like, he died for this police force. They just resurrected him, stuck him back out on the streets. So he's a product. They own him. We can easily attach, you know, the, the spiritual connotations, the Paul Verhoeven, you know, coming to Christ moments. But Peter Weller himself, he stated... When he was regarding this film, he said, when I was making it, I knew it was going to be a great thing, but you never know whether they're going to be successful or not. I knew we were making a a fantastic social allegory and, I don't want to sound pretentious, a spiritual one as well. So from the very outset, you know, we've mentioned Paul Verhoeven's Coming to Christ, Joe Esther has the screenwriter of Basic Instinct. Was it written in the stars all along? Was this purely made? Is this purely a film? Is this a Christ resurrection story for the new millennium, so to speak? I mean, a little bit, yeah. I think some of that stuff maybe gained momentum over time like obviously the you know references to resurrection um like you mentioned about how his like posing in the christ position as he dies and sort of becomes this martyr figure that the people of this downtrodden crime-ridden city are able to rally behind in this positive way that is there to fight evil like all that stuff is very much uh there and depending on how you want to watch the film you can experience that uh much more on the front foot if you choose to well we've spoken about how smart this film is like how layered it is how subversive it is one thing we've not talked about which is quite interesting is how funny this film is yeah like watching this back a few days ago i was laughing my ass off like a lot of the comedy comes from the kind of over-the-top brutal violent kills i'm like wow there are so many squibs in this film there are so much blood being shed but i think a lot of the screenplay is very funny as well i think this is possibly my favorite funny line 
Do you know the part where the guy, I think he's called Miller, he has the mayor and a bunch of people, he's held them yep. he's yeah. held them hostage, and Robocop goes in and says to the guy, you know, keep him talking. And at one point, Miller says, I want a new car. What kind of car? And Miller says, something with reclining leather seats that goes really fast and gets really shitty gas mileage. <laughs> like, I just love a lot of that. And sure enough, I like how the film follows up on that because it's the 6000 SUX is the car they're talking about. Mm-hmm. You know those ads that are interspersed throughout the yep. film? An ad comes up for the 6000 SUX, 8.2 miles to the gallon. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a V14. Something like that. I'm yeah. surprised you got through that without calling it the 6000 sucks. Word. <laughs> there, there, is, there are so many on the nose remarks in this film, like ED209, of course. What is the ED209? 209 do when it comes into the conference room it malfunctions of course it's an allegory for erectile dysfunction <laughs> you know all the all these things are happening all these things are going on it, it's all this attack on the consumerist culture and i think now here is one of the really interesting points okay we have emil now emil is a gang member now he very much looks like the member flea from the red hot chili peppers did anybody mm-hmm. else think this yeah i think so. yeah, yeah. Okay, so his death, his death is mo- maybe the most gruesome. Now, in the the warehouse, he goes into a toxic waste dispenser. He is conce- which is conceived by the effects with Rob Bottin. Now, this effects was named the Melting Man. This was in tribute to his and fellow filmmaker and effects whiz rick baker's work on the 77 film the incredible melton man now this death scene is probably the most striking of the entire film i thought this was tremendous and i forget the name what was emil's real name what was his uh actor's name he looks so much like flea i just keep refer- referencing him flea but not flea it's, uh, paul, paul mccrane yeah yeah and sorry oh, c- can we take this moment to say you bought R- rob botton i'm really glad you did what a guy like i think he's one of the kind of unsung heroes in the world of practical effects because everybody knows like stan winston and rick baker but botton also had a great career he did the thing he did total recall he did the fog he did fear and loathing in las vegas and some others as well and it's it's remarkable i know a lot of people have said if you were to get hit with toxic waste that kind of thing you wouldn't look anything like that you wouldn't look anywhere near as grotesque and i know paul who says so I think it was actually like radiation experts or toxicology experts, but Paul McCrane did have to wear like a kind of big, awkward, hulking plastic suit. And I believe his death was actually rated like one of the best movie deaths of all time. And it made me laugh. Is it really sick that it made me laugh? (laughs) I mean, like, I think in watching it last night, it was the way he's moaning. And it's the way that his friend reacts to him, uh, Leon played by Ray Wise, how he's like just begging for help and he grabs a hold of his friend and he's just like, oh, get off of me <laughs> and runs away. So it's it's a combination of all those things and plus just like it's sort of, it's almost like out of Dick Tracy that like he's going to run Robocop over with a truck and Robocop, who is not fleet of foot at all, hmm. happens to use his one moment of agility to dodge this van as it's coming towards him and then, you know, the, all the... <laughs> toxic waste spills into the truck at that point and then he gets liquefied on Bodiger's uh, windshield <laughs> which is I mean it's gross okay and it's a great like bad guy kill but I still think that like Murphy's death scene is far more graphic and impactful mm-hmm. it, it's not as grotesque but I, I see not. what you mean it, it has more impact it, it has more emotional impact doesn't it 
Whereas Emile's death is kind of, you know, it's, it's gross. You know, it's it's a hark back to Incredible Melton Man, as Rob Bottin wants to say. But one of the highlights, one of the highlights of this film, and it's not even on screen, it is Basil Poldaris's score. Mm. Now, I love this score. Me and Wayne will of, often tussle between, look, what's our top five favourites of something? <laughs> and I always come back to this score. I think this is a terrific score. Now, Verhoeven... He wanted Paul Darris to score Total Recall. Now, if anybody knows about Total Recall, they'll know Jerry Goldsmith scored that film. But Paul Darris was already booked to score The Hunt for Red, Red October, which was released around the same time as Total Recall. And Paul Darris didn't want to juggle two projects at once. So Verhoeven, he once told Paul Darris, he said, look... I choose Jerry Goldsmith for more, my more intellectual work and you, Paul Darris, for my more emotional impact. Now, how does this work? Is We know Jerry Goldsmith scored Basic Instinct. Is that more intellectual than Robocop? I'm not sure. I don't know. You know when you said, I was worried that he was going to say, I do you for my more intellectual and I do you for my more stupid films. I thought he was going to <laughs> make, make that kind of interesting contrast there. I, I, I think it was a roundabout way of saying that, was it? Maybe, yeah. I, I don't see what's, yeah. why you would call the kind of score intellectual. It's all very good scores in these films. Maybe the more... So this is this, this is emotional, total recalls intellectual, basic instincts intellectual. I, I know Paul Verhoeven once said, with he was referencing The Hollow Man, and he said specifically, about the hollow man look basic instinct that's a very easy film to to make you have the instincts of the actors you have the actors who are getting into the characters they know where they're going you have a film like the hollow man where it's very technical it's very there's a lot of special effects there's a lot of meandering around the scenery which doesn't necessarily involve the actor themselves but a basic instinct for example it's all about the character the character's intense and he said he was saying how basic instinct was so much easier to film and do you think that comes about to robocop do you think robocop is a more I know you know we've got Paul Darris score in this film so it's more emotional and intellectual <laughs> so to speak but I think in many ways Robocop is a very intellectual film and I think I'm probably guessing both of you agree yeah I definitely say so 100% but I mean I'm biased I love this movie I've, you know I yeah I've seen it so many times this was the first Criterion DVD that I ever had was this was Robocop and I recently got the Arrow uh, Blu-ray director's cut which is what I watched last night uh, and it didn't strike me as like oh there's something that I don't remember from maybe the theatrical cut or something that I had watched prior, but maybe I've just been watching the director's cut more recently as I've gotten older and not noticed it. More violent. Well, the first time I ever watched Robocop was as a kid, and of course I absolutely adored it, but I loved it for the same reason you like action films as a kid, because they're gory and they're violent, and because it's taboo. I wasn't meant to be watching this, but I was like watching it late night, you know, in my bedroom, on my TV. But then years later, you watch it, and then there's certain lines of dialogue, certain things that happen, and you think to yourself, oh, I get what they're going here. So you see these kind of multi-layers. I think my favourite detail I only noticed on this time watching, let me know if you noticed this, there's a whole thing with Murphy where he does this thing where he spins a gun on his mm -hmm. finger because his kid watched this show, T.J. Laser. T.J. Laser shoots a bad guy, spins the gun, gun back in the holster. Murphy's practicing this over and over again. We have a scene where Robocop is on the firing range 
And of course, mm-hmm. he's just destroying the targets. If you notice, when Robocop spins his gun there, he's actually spinning it forward, opposite to the way Murphy did. And then at the very end, after Murphy shoots Dick Jones, spins it back the original way when he did when he was a human at the beginning. I never noticed that beforehand. That is such <laughs> a great detail there, that humanity coming back to him. Yeah, and especially in the way that you describe it, that it's like he's fighting it when he's like first reborn as robocop and Mm -hmm. like that instinct is there that memory is there it's just hasn't really fully resurfaced uh, for Mm -hmm. him to be able to contextualize it which i think is one of the most important parts of this film and if we're talking about memorable scenes one of the most memorable memorable sequences for me is the memory jogging scene when Robocop is becoming aware of himself when he returns to his family home and this is done exceptionally well he said he sees these glimpses of the life he used to have whether his wife his kid and it, it's this juxtaposition between the almost monster he's come because it's very much in the classical universal monster style of the monster being created even though he is doing work for good sake let's speak but it's very much a monster movie it's very much a robotic movie and look this this sequence does sometimes veer into sentimentality but i think it works because verhoven as we know you know we've mentioned him he's all usually working on a very heightened approach there's not much tact there's not much subtlety everything is out in the open everything is heightened to the eighth degree and i think this works tremendously well and you know there is strong moments within this film and i don't know i was think i was thinking about this before i was like is this film does this film have the perfect three act structure because we have the the death of the christ the resurrection of the christ and the resurrection again so to speak in the third act and i was thinking does this film have the perfect when it comes to sci-fi three-act structure and i think it does and i think this film specifically is a masterpiece in the same way the first terminator is it is scaled back in many aspects it, it, it has a point it has a polemic it has a point of view and i think that's important the filmmakers the writers the actors etc they know where they're going they know what they're doing and there's not much deviation. It's like when Robocop becomes Robocop. Once he becomes Robocop, we see a a whole trove of scenes, and it's him on call, it's him on action, and there's a scene where he kills a a, a parent or a soon-to-be rapist, and he the woman spreads her legs, he shoots between her legs, he shoots him in the balls. Now, this scene... This scene was going to be he shoots him to the left of her head and shoots him straight in the head. But Verhoeven, you know, he's the stylist, he's the eccentrist. He said, look, I see this woman's legs are open. I'm going between her legs. I'm going to shoot him in the nuts. It was on the call. It was on the spur of the moment. This wasn't in the script. And I think that is fascinating. There is so much gold here. Oh, absolutely. And some of those like little nuance touches really make robocop as special as it is and at the time that this came out you know there's a lot of other 80s action films that sort of tread the same line they take you down the same familiar path you got good guy bad guy lots of one-liners lots of bad guys dying lots of action so it's interesting that a movie like robocop can come in and sort of do that movie better than the other movies 
just stylistically, but then also to include all the many different layers of sort of the intellectual stimuli that we have mentioned to this point. And I think one of my biggest takeaways this time was that when Bob Morton sort of, you know, pushes the RoboCop project and then we see the whole process of it and he's just like, hey, you know what? Uh, RoboCop is online and he's going into public service today. There was no beta testing. There was no like, hey, let's pilot program this. He just shows RoboCop right out in the public. And on the first day on the job, RoboCop has a nightmare. And it's like, you just, it tells me that it's a commentary on this corporate system, like biting off more than they can chew. They think that they can control humanity in a way that they can. That speaks to your point, I think, Liam, about like how sort of like there's this human element to this character and to this story that like no matter how hard you try to drill it out is still going to be there. Right. And I think so. And I think this comes into casting as well. You know, we've mentioned Peter Weller. He's very much slimmed down. But one of the first considerations of casting of this film was Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> now, he he would go into Verhoeven's Total Recall, but he wouldn't have been a good fit for this. Look, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they thought, would be too enormous in the suit. We realized, he said, we'd need somebody slim so we could build a really powerful robo-suit. And this becomes into importance. And as you were mentioned with Dick Smith, now, of course, we've mentioned the allegories here. We've got ED-209, erectile dysfunction, okay? (laughs) We've got Dick Smith, another penis reference. And and as we're saying about with Verhoeven, for example, the the, the heightened reality, but one, one of the little nuances I love in this film is when Bob Morton goes into the bathroom, right? He's the underling of Dick Jones, Mm -hmm. and he is shit-talking dick jones while dick jones is apparently taking a shit we i mm-hmm. think we, i think that's fair to say he's yeah. in he's in the stall okay dick jones is listening to this he's hearing what bob morton is speaking to him his underling the guy who's trying to bring robocop to this story because remember at the very first time of this film they're trying to build a new delta because old detroit in this film is crime ridden it is fucked they're wanting to bring a new delta where you know the corporations can take control they can be the big man on town but here we have we have dick jones he's in the stall he's you know having whatever number you want to call bob morton is there washing his hands talking crap about about dick jones dick jones gets out of the bathroom he's like look look Bob I know what you're saying about me you can go fuck yourself but here's the thing he does not wash his hands yeah. <laughs> he goes he he, tu- he he touches Bob Morton's face without washing his hands after being at the toilet and I thought look here we go it's the subtleties here is Verhoeven working on this heightened reality this essentially a comic book story even though it's not a comic book story it's got very much references to Iron Man for example all them kind of films comic books but at the heart of it, because Verhoeven is who he is, he is a master of the cinematic experience and he knows nuance, even though he's working in a heightened reality. He knows these little fuck yous. He knows these little social cues. He knows how to get under a character. He knows how to get under their skin, how to say, okay, you think I'm a dick? Well, here, look, I'm going to be a dick. You think Bob Morton's the bad guy? Well, here, I'm Dick Jones. I'm going to smear my... You know, my my toilet smeared hand across your face <laughs> while while you hate me. I mean, I hope he wiped well, but at the same time, like you know, it's Dick Jones. He maybe didn't wipe so well. 
he wanted to wipe it in Bob's hair. But yeah, that scene is intense because you've got everybody else in that executive bathroom sort of scurrying out because they know that Jones is in the stall. Even the guy who's Morton's friend who's sitting there next to him or, well, standing next to him at the yeah. urinal, like he's just, oh, don't Dick Jones is in here. Like, I'm not <laughs> even done peeing. I just got to put it away and piss on myself because yep. I don't want to yep. be here for this confrontation. So it definitely, like, tells the audience and Bob, like, how serious dick jones is as a person and how he does not take kindly to being shit talked well funnily enough bob morton in this film is played by miguel ferrer now he is in twin peaks i think it's season two he enters twin peaks and he's in twin peaks the return and also the father of laura palmer from twin peaks leyland palmer is also one of the bad guys in this film mm. now a bit a bit of a little trivia i'm not sure I, i'm sure a lot of people into films know this but miguel, miguel ferrer is actually the first cousin the first cousin of george clooney i did not know this <laughs> wow that's random i think yeah. i think i know him more for from this film and did you ever see hot shorts part two the oh, spoof yeah. film yeah. yeah i think it's those two films i mostly know him from he seemed to be a very kind of underappreciated talent in his day. I know he's passed away now, but he was great in this film. And I know he doesn't have a huge role, but the idea that he starts off as this kind of pleasant, very idealistic guy, but as soon as he's given these opportunities to rise the corporate ladder, he, he essentially just becomes like everybody else. Yeah, and I like that he sort of is presented as like the lesser of two evils, but like his yeah. ambition is what gets the better of him. And that's framed against, Liam, you had mentioned, sort of their building yeah. of Delta City and like this false promise of what Delta City represents to the average person because Morton is already like he's not uh, an executive but he's like a junior partner or whatever at the uh, yeah. OCP and so like you know he's wearing a suit and tie like he's living a decent life in this bad version of Detroit but the promise is that this Delta City is going to like create jobs and sort of like this commentary on how trickle down economics doesn't really yeah. work in the way that it's promised to and what we see is mostly the people at the top of the food chain being shitty and he's part of that so there are a lot of aspects to this film there's so many facets to it there are so many layers we spent all this time talking about it going back and forth so nick this is a film that holds a lot of sentimentality for you you've you know watched it your entire life you've revisited it tens and tens of times does it still really hold up for you are there any parts of it that are kind of shaky and when do you think you'll watch it next I think it does hold up pretty damn well, to be honest. And I think even the most recent time I watched it before this, um, I was a little iffy on sort of like the stop motion with the Ed yeah. 209. Mm -hmm. And then watching it in the 4K Blu-ray, I you know, I thought it was really well done, actually. I didn't have the same kind of disconnect from it that I felt like I did before. Uh, and, you know, there's still the one scene where it's like kind of Ed is on his back in the stairwell and they sort of juxtapose that with uh, the, the screen or whatever in the background. And so you can kind of tell like it looks a little janky at that point. But aside from that one part, like they did all of the practical effects works as good as they could. I mean, there was a full size replica of Ed at one yeah. point that moved when they needed to. So I, I feel like they really got around all of the, the technical snafus pretty well. And you know, like we had talked about throughout the course of this conversation, RoboCop is just such a deeply layered film on 
so many levels. It's very personal. Uh, it's a very solid action movie. It's a great sci-fi film. And it is sort of a very uniquely Verhoeven film in its approach to authoritarian uh, ideals and its criticisms of that. So I think this, especially as a piece of Verhoeven's history, not just of film history, this is a movie that helped inform who he was as a filmmaker and uh, it helped inform the audience as to like what we can expect from him down the line. So I, I, I would give this movie like my highest recommendation. It is super violent. Like, I don't know if I'm just like getting older or something, but some of the, some of the violence in this movie, I'm like, damn, this is so violent. Like Murphy's hand turned, gets turned into like spaghetti and it's just <laughs> gross. Yeah. And so it's just, it's super effective in all the things that it wants to do. And that's, really difficult especially when you probably had a lot of people not give this film a second chance just based on the title and i'm talking about pre-production stuff before it even got made once it got made and its sort of lineage and its legacy were well established and it was popular then it's very easy to you know get on board with it in hindsight but before this movie got made it was probably difficult to sell people on the idea of a movie called robocop and I think in summation, Nick, that is perfectly what you're saying. And I think to quote the actress, Nancy Ald, who plays Anne Lewis in this film, she says, Paul Verhoeven was like a mad genius and just the right side of crazy. His energy is the energy of this movie. And I think that sums it up. Paul Verhoeven, he's a one-off. He came from, you know, the European underground, so to speak. He made his way to Hollywood. But when he was in Hollywood, he retained his innate sensibility. He didn't, you know, drift into the, the Hollywood sphere. He was always Paul Verhoeven, whether that is Showgirls, whether that is Robocop, whether that is Basic Instinct, where he drifted on Hitchcock, for example. He is always Paul Verhoeven. And I've got to salute him for that because there's many lesser directors who would say, look, I've got my big chance here. I've got my big bucks here. I'm going to make whatever the studio wants me to make. But Paul Verhoeven, he was like, no, fuck that. I'm Paul Verhoeven. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And we're better off for that because whether you like it or not, whether it's divisive or not, whether you agree with it or not, it's Paul Verhoeven. That Verhoeven was able to approach this is still as a sort of like piece of outsider art where, you know, we had given a lot of the comparable action films of the 80s at the time that were sort of like making action films from within inside the system. So for him to come in and have his own view of like how this world exists really gives Robocop the particular type of flavor that makes it such a delicious watch. So we're agreed Robocop was a masterpiece, it is a masterpiece, and it forever will be a masterpiece. Thank you for listening to episode 63 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. Join us next time when we'll discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film from the obscure to the mainstream. <laughs> <laughs>